this time the children ages three to six are dismissed for children's church so you can make your way to the back there may even be a bouncy castle involved I would invite you now to bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great truth that we've just watched. That Lord Jesus, you have gone back to heaven, but you are preparing a place for us. And you will come again so that we can be where you are. Thank you for this great and living hope that we have. Thank you today for your word, which we can once again enter into. And I pray, Father, your blessing that you would speak to our hearts Reveal your truth to us. Help us to receive what you have for each one of us today. Apply it to our hearts, to our circumstances. Pray that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing in our series on the gospel of Jesus according to Mark. Today we're on to part five, entitled, When the Devil Goes to Church. It was a Sabbath day just like any other in the fishing town of Capernaum. Everything was quiet. The hustle and bustle of the week was silenced. The fishing boats were all pulled up on shore. The markets were closed, and no trade caravans moved through town. For it was the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was a day of rest. However, for most people, it was also a day of worship, and many were already at the synagogue early in the morning, listening to the local rabbis read and teach the scriptures. No one was expecting anything out of the ordinary on that particular Sabbath service. But then something unexpected did happen. A group of around 10 men entered the synagogue and were looking for a place to sit on the benches which flanked the room. It was readily apparent that the one walking at the front of this group of 10 men was a rabbi and that the other young, younger men following behind him were his disciples, his students. Well, there was nothing overly impressive or immediately noteworthy about this rabbi. Uh, he looked like a relatively ordinary man, dressed in ordinary clothing, and no one seemed quite sure who he was. Quick, inquisitive glances were sent towards the disciples, and sure enough, amongst them were four familiar faces to the people of Capernaum, there were Zebedee's two sons, James and John, as well as another set of brothers, Andrew and Peter, well-known fishermen in that area. All of these being fishermen were not exactly the scholarly types, not the sort of people that a rabbi would typically follow or call to follow him and be his students. Now, for a rabbi to choose fishermen as his disciples, well, that was surprising enough, but what was even more surprising was that the story had gone around that they had all just jumped up, left their nets, left their boats, and had immediately followed him that very same day. And so here, the four of them were back in their hometown of Capernaum, following their new rabbi. Well, a few minutes after their arrival, they had all found seats, and the rabbi, who was teaching in the synagogue that day, had finished his reading and his explanation of the scriptures, he then sat down and all eyes instinctively swung to the new rabbi. Did he have a word to share? Well, sure enough, he stood up. He walked to the front, he took one of the scrolls of scripture, and he began to read. Well, the moment the rabbi spoke his first words, the audience was captivated. 
for he spoke with such conviction, so different from the other rabbis who would just mechanically recite the words. For when this rabbi read the scripture, it was as though he wasn't reading someone else's words, but speaking his very own. And then when he began to teach, explaining the scriptures, they couldn't help but be amazed, not just by what he said, but how he said it with such authority. He did not invoke any other teachers to back up his claims. He simply spoke, and it was so. But then something truly unexpected happened on that morning. For then, without any warning, suddenly one of the men sitting on one of the benches flanking the synagogue jumped up from his seat, and he began to cry out in a loud voice, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, the people were stunned by this interruption. But the rabbi, he simply looked at the man and said sternly, Be quiet. Instantly, the man obeyed and fell silent. A shocked silence fell over the entire synagogue. What was happening here? And what was wrong with this man? Was he possessed by an evil spirit? Then the rabbi spoke again to the man, and with complete authority, he commanded, Come out of him. And it was almost as though the rabbi's words hit the man like a hammer, because instantly he fell to the ground, shaking and convulsing violently. Then letting out one last spine-tingling shriek, the evil spirit was gone, and it was all over. The man relaxed, and then suddenly he sat up clear-eyed, and in his right mind. And at this, all the people were astounded and said to each other, What is this? He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. Now make no mistake about it. This was a worship service unlike any others that the people of Capernaum had ever experienced, and they would never forget it. I'm sure the story of that day was told and retold for generations to come. Now imagine, just to put it into context, if something were to happen here this morning, if suddenly someone were to jump up here in this place of worship and an exchange like that were to happen. It's wild when we actually try to picture what it was like for the people that day. A day that the people would never forget and it's recorded for us in the Gospels for a very important reason. For it was a day that both Jesus and the devil went to church. A day that both Jesus and the devil went to church. Now, of course, we're not at all surprised that Jesus went to church, or more specifically in this case, the synagogue, which was in general terms the Old Testament equivalent. Synagogue meaning a place of gathering. Church essentially meaning the gathering, the assembly. So it's roughly the same thing, though, of course, the eras are different. We read in a parallel account that when Jesus went to the synagogue, Luke says, as was his custom, meaning Jesus didn't miss going to the synagogue on a Sabbath. This was his custom. He was there each and every Sabbath. So we're not surprised to find Jesus at the synagogue. But what about the devil? Or rather, in this case, one of his demons, in the synagogue, in church, so to speak. Does this surprise you? It surprises me when I really stop and think about it. 
What is a demon doing in a place of worship? What is a, what is a demon-possessed man doing sitting in the synagogue? Does this surprise you? That the devil and or his demons might go to church. Because really, when we think about it, it shouldn't. Just think back to our sermon series at the beginning of this calendar year on spiritual warfare. And there within that series, we saw how the Bible presents us with this picture throughout the pages of Scripture of this great cosmic battle taking place between the forces of God, the forces of light, and the forces of Satan, and the forces of darkness. And they are in this, this clash through all the ages. And the Bible gives us this picture. And in this spiritual battle, the Bible further shows that we are not mere spectators. We're not passively on the sidelines saying, oh, I wonder who's going to win, God or Satan. No, we are active combatants, as Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us clearly. For our war, note that our war or our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, if you recall, one of the key things from this statement is that our enemy is not other people, but Satan. Remember, our war is not against flesh and blood. Satan, of course, loves to turn people against each other. That's why this world is filled with wars, where people are fighting against people. But if we were to truly recognize who our enemy is, it's Satan. It's not other people. This is one of his greatest deceptions, to turn mankind against one another. But within this spiritual battle, there are no neutral people. Jesus made this very clear. He said things like, those who are not with me are against me. And as the old saying goes, if you're still sitting on the fence, just remember that the devil owns the fence. Right? There's lots of people who say, oh, I'm not sure, I, I haven't made up my mind yet. Well, if you're on the fence, the devil owns that too. However, if you have been born again as a child of God, you're no longer on the fence, you're all in, you've put your faith in, in Christ to save you, well, as a result, you have switched sides. You are now in God's army, on God's side. And as a result, the enemy of our God has become your enemy, and he's become my enemy. So when Christians gather together as the church, the assembly, we become the physical expression of the spiritual body of Christ on earth. We are the body of Christ here this morning. We are the physical expression of that. And so therefore, in this cosmic battle, we are a real and active threat to Satan and his kingdom of darkness. So as we have gathered here this morning to worship God and to pray and to teach and to learn, and to encourage each other. Satan absolutely hates it. He hates the fact that we have gathered here this morning. He hates the fact that you are present here this morning. And so he will do everything he can to disrupt, distract, and if possible, prevent this from happening at all. So not only should we not be surprised that the devil and his demons go to church, for if Satan's forces can infiltrate the church body, they then have the ability to create confusion, division, and discouragement in the attempts to thwart the work of God and the preaching of the gospel. And even if Satan cannot outright destroy us and close our doors, he will gladly keep us perpetually distracted, divided, and discouraged so that we pose little to no threat to him. 
If he, can't, if he can't stop us altogether, he will do everything he can to diminish us as a threat to his kingdom. There's an old fable called the devil's tool sale. You've probably heard it before. In this fable, it goes that one day it was advertised that the devil was putting up his tools for sale in a yard sale. And so people would come and peruse all of these deadly weapons laid out on the various tables. They were there for inspection, price tags fixed to each one. Many of them were just hideous, devious-looking instruments. Some of them had labels on them like hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, pride, lust, and so on. But laid apart from the rest of the devil's tools was a rather harmless-looking instrument. It was much more worn than any of the others, but for some reason it was priced ten times higher than any of the other instruments. What's the name of this tool? asked one of the customers. That, the devil replied, is discouragement. But it looks so plain and worn, the customer said. Why have you priced it so high? To which the devil replied, because discouragement is more useful to me than all the others. For with that one tool I can pry open and get inside a man's heart when I cannot get near to him in any other way. And the reason it's so badly worn is because I have used it on everyone. And since so few people even know discouragement belongs to me, they don't even realize they're under attack. Now this may just be a fable, but I think it demonstrates a very important truth. Discouragement does not come from God. Discouragement comes from the enemy. So let me ask you this morning, are you feeling discouraged about anything today? If so, then whatever it is, recognize it for what it is. It is an attack from Satan. For you see, God is not in the business of discouraging his children. He simply is not. Instead, he's the one who throughout the pages of Scripture speaks encouragement to his children to bring strength and hope to overcome the darkness. He's the one who said to Joshua and also to us today, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so you see, it is Satan who wants to keep us in a position of perpetual fear and perpetual discouragement. This is one of his great tactics against us. But it is God who not only desires, but in fact with Joshua, commands us to be strong and courageous. The exact opposite of fearful and discouraged. Strong and courageous. This is God's will for us. And so this is where on Father's Day today, I, I just a word for my fellow dads out there. I think this word is specifically important for us as men. Yes, this broken world is filled with problems. It is filled with trials so long of a list that we could spend the rest of the day just categorizing them all. And there are so many other things that we could spend our time on in the realm of darkness, in Satan's realm of where he is just bombarding us with all sorts of things. And so, the command from God is this. Be strong and courageous. Yes, the devil in this dark culture is seeking to deceive and lure in your children with its lies. So, be strong and courageous. Yes, the devil would love to drive a wedge between you and your wife and your family or your children. So, 
be strong and courageous. Yes, our church is in Satan's crosshairs seeking to disrupt and destroy. So, be strong and courageous. You see, none of these things are calls for being fearful and discouraged. That is Satan's desire for us. But God's is just as it was for Joshua. Yes, the Canaanite land is before you. It's filled with giants and fortified cities. Not a time for fear and discouragement, Joshua. It's a time for faith. Step up. Be strong and courageous, dads. Yeah, we've got all sorts of things ahead of us, but what's the key of why we can be strong and courageous? What did God say to Joshua? Because you're going to go it alone, Joshua. It's up to you. Not at all. He said, for I will be with you wherever you go. That is why we can be strong and courageous. God is with us. Whatever comes, he is with us. He goes before us. And so, fathers, more than ever, today is a day where your wives, your children, your church, and your world need you to not shrink back in fear and discouragement, but to receive the command of the Lord, to step up in your faith, stand firm, resist the schemes of the evil one, and be strong and courageous. This is why Ephesians 4.27 tells us, do not give the devil a foothold. Guess what discouragement is? It's a foothold. Do not give it to him. Because once we give him even an inch, whether in our personal lives, in our family, or in the church body, he will take a mile. Obviously, there were many people back in Jesus' time who had given the devil a foothold. The man in the synagogue that day, the one possessed by this demon, he had clearly given the devil a foothold to the extent that he had come under direct demonic influence and possession. And as we see in our text, one of Jesus' primary ministries throughout the Gospels was delivering people from demonic affliction and possession. There's a famous movie called The Exorcist from a generation ago, but it sort of set the standard in this particular genre. Many other Hollywood films have come since that sensationalize this sort of a thing. However, as the scriptures clearly explain to us, Jesus was and remains the original exorcist. Because throughout the Gospels, it is specifically mentioned 26 times that Jesus exorcised, or rather, cast out demons from people. And many of those 26 occasions are just general statements like, and he also cast out many demons. So this was almost like an afterthought because this was such a common component of Jesus' ministry. The fact is that the spiritual powers of evil are a very real and present danger, and therefore we must also take them very seriously. This is why in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter instructs us, Be alert and sober-minded, for your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Now, getting back to our primary text in Mark, Let's ask a few questions as we go through to help dive into the text and explain some of the pieces in it a little bit more clearly. I have five questions for us this morning from this text. Question number one. What was a demon-possessed man doing in a synagogue in the first place? What was he doing there that day? Well, there's a number of possible reasons. The first is that Satan directed him there in an attempt to sabotage and disrupt Jesus' teaching, and we see that certainly did happen. There was a disruption. The second possible reason is 
Well, the fact that this possessed man was already in the synagogue before Jesus arrived, we can infer from this, and the text is actually implying, that this man was not out of place in the synagogue. Perhaps he was even a regular attendee. Now, if this is the case, it's possible that his mission was to, in more subtle ways, disrupt God's word from being truly heard or received. Or perhaps in the aftermath, he's somehow casting doubt upon the, upon the word that is preached or, or creating discord within the people. Whatever the case is, he could have been a regular there. And we don't even know. Perhaps he had an outburst of some kind when the scriptures were read in the past. We don't know. The third possible reason that the man was there that day is I suspect that part of this possessed man Part of him still knew that something was terribly, terribly wrong in his life. Now, someone who's, who's directly possessed by an evil spirit, things are not good in their life. And I suspect this man knew this. And perhaps he was even trying to do something about it. Perhaps he was trying to somehow fix himself by going to the synagogue, being religious. And so it sort of poses a question if this is the case, how many people may not be doing the same thing today or something like it? They think that, well, something's really wrong in my life. I'm, I'm, I just know it. There's something broken inside of me. Or, or just they, they understand things aren't going well. And so they're, they're trying to do something about it. They're trying to better themselves. And so they go to church, try to fix it. And perhaps by doing some outward observances of religion... This will fix my problems. Well, friends, there's, there's an important truth embedded in here. If it's just about religion and acts of religion, there's an old saying that a youth pastor from years ago coined that I'll share with you. It sums it up quite well. Just as going to McDonald's doesn't make you a cheeseburger, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Right? The, the one doesn't equal the other. Now, to be clear, yes, going to church is what a Christian does. And a Christian does this in response to the gospel. We do this in order to worship God and to grow and to serve. But going to church is not what makes us a Christian. What makes us a Christian is meeting Jesus Christ one-on-one. -on -one. Being born again in the Spirit. Having Jesus deliver us from the enemies and the clutches of sin and death that we have been born into. And when we come to him in repentance and faith, we are truly set free from all of those things. We're set free in this life and for the next life, in eternity with Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. And the, out, the outworking of that is, yes, we gather. Yes, we worship. Yes, we grow and serve. But that's not what makes us one. It is Jesus Christ. So you see, just as for that man, the action of going to the synagogue alone was not enough to fix his problem. Clearly, the action, perhaps he'd been doing it for years, was not enough to keep this evil spirit at bay. And so too for us, just going to church alone is not enough. We need the power and authority of Jesus Christ personally applied to our lives in order to be truly set free. This is not optional. This is a requirement. We need to meet Jesus Christ and have his presence and authority applied to our lives. This is the first question, is what was the man doing there? 
The second question is, how did this possessed man know Jesus' true identity? We see in the text, he jumps up and says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How did he know this? Well, the answer is that it wasn't the man who knew Jesus' true identity. Rather, it was the demon. And throughout the Gospels, we actually find that it is the demon-possessed who consistently give the clearest witness about Jesus' true identity. This one stating not only his earthly identity as Jesus of Nazareth, that he could have maybe figured out from some investigative work, but he declares, you are the Holy One of God. Jesus had not yet revealed that to, to anyone, as far as the scriptures are concerned, yet he knew this. Now, isn't it interesting that while people continuously doubted Jesus' true identity, both back then and still today, Satan and the demons have no doubt whatsoever about who Jesus is. Elsewhere in Luke 4 and verse 41, we read, Many were possessed by demons, and the demons came out at his command, shouting, You are the Son of God! What a declaration! Right? Later on, when Peter finally made his declaration that, yes, you are the Messiah, that was such a big deal that Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood has not taught this to you. It was, it was taught by the Spirit, and upon this I will build my church. It was a big deal when Peter made that declaration, and yet the demons make this declaration before anyone else. You are the Son of God. You are the Holy One of God. And yet... Jesus was not interested in receiving the, the demon's testimony regarding himself. Each and every time they said who he was, he silenced them. Be quiet. He silenced them. He did not want to receive their testimony. For you see, the angels, they were originally created to serve in God's glorious presence. From the very first moment they came into being, they opened their eyes, there was God in all of his glory. God, Father, Son, and Spirit before them. They served. That was their purpose, to serve the King of glory before his very throne. And so they know who Jesus is because they were created and birthed in his presence. They knew exactly who Jesus was and is, for they served before him. However, we know from Scripture that Satan, pride was found in his heart. He rebelled against God. He said, I will ascend. I will become like the Most High. And somehow his persuasiveness was enough that he brought a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion. They, of course, could not win. God cast them out of heaven, Satan and his fallen angels. And so Jesus was not interested in receiving their testimony because their opportunity had already passed to give him glory it was not their turn, and so he silenced them. And this comes to the third question, one that I've often pondered, one that I've had many people ask me. Do the demons, the fallen angels, do they have any chance for salvation? Could they possibly repent and receive mercy and grace? Well, the short answer is no. No. Their opportunity to either side with God or with Satan has already come and gone. And so their final judgment of being cast into the lake of fire, which the Bible says God prepared specifically for them, this has already been pronounced. It cannot be undone. And that is why this demon in, in this text shrieks, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
Then on another occasion in Matthew 8, a legion of demons shouted at him, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So you see, clearly, God has pronounced a final judgment upon these fallen angels. They know it. It has been pronounced. They know that the appointed time is coming. And so, we know that they know that there is no way back. They have made their choice. Their judgment has been pronounced. However, according to God's timing and will, that time is not yet. And so they continue to seek to wreak havoc on God's plan and on his people while they still can, for their time is short. And this leads us to question number four. Can demons still possess people today? Well, again, the short answer is yes. Now, of course, in our secular Western culture, Satan has some centuries ago made a strategic decision to pull back on many of his more overt schemes in this area and to work more from the shadows. We talked about this back in our series on spiritual warfare. For in order to deceive people into believing that there is no God, in order to sell the the sort of the big live evolution that this all just came about without God, without a creator, he had to accept that people also wouldn't believe in the devil. Because how can you not believe in God but believe in the devil? So this was a trade-off, a strategic trade-off, that he was willing to make in order to sell the big lie that God did not exist. But if you talk to any overseas missionaries or read about animistic cultures, which is those cultures that believe spirits inhabit all things, many Asian cultures uh, are very animistic in this way, you will quickly discover, with just a little bit of digging and research, that direct demonic possession is still very common in these countries and in these places. And I believe it is becoming increasingly more common in our Western culture as well. Of course, our modern medicine, our our secular view of all things, quickly writes off anything spiritual as only, no, that's just mental illness. But I recently spoke with a Christian nurse who works in a psychiatric ward in a major hospital. And we were talking about this, and I asked her what she thought about this. And she said that from what she has both seen and experienced firsthand, it's that it's not either mental illness or demonic activity, but rather both. It's not one or the other. Both are at play. And she said that it seems that the enemy often goes after those who are mentally ill more often simply because they are vulnerable. And she also said that spiritual themes are very common with more than one man telling her that he was the Antichrist and another, after harming himself, telling her that he was a demon and even what his name was. Now, not surprisingly, when these encounters happened, she said that, well, her hair was standing up on the back of her neck and there was a lot of prayer going on in these situations. It's not one or the other. We are are created spiritual, emotional, physical beings. There are a lot of things at play. And I know from firsthand experience that the enemy is very, very real. He is no respecter of persons. He will prey on the young and the old, the weak and the sick, the depressed and the mentally ill, just as readily as he will prey upon someone who is whole and healthy. He is no respecter of persons and he does not play fair. 
And wherever he has given a foothold, he will seek to exploit that position further. Now, thankfully, a demon cannot, cannot possess a person who is born again. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, no other lesser spirit can indwell. It simply cannot take up residence. God will not allow this. However, demonic affliction and oppression from the, from the outside, external oppression, can still happen to a believer. And this is why we are told to resist him and to stand firm in the faith. And so question number four, was Jesus frightened by the demon? Not at all. In fact, it was quite the reverse. We see Jesus is calm and in control, and it is the demon who is afraid and trembling. In 1 Peter 3.22, we are told, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So Jesus was not afraid because he operated with God, his Father's full authority. With all angels, authorities, and powers, including Satan and his demons, including the one present that day, in full submission to him. Therefore, when this happens, there is no dramatic struggle between Jesus and the demon. There's no tug of war back and forth like, oh, is Jesus going to win or not? It's so close. No, there was no match. Jesus' authority and power just simply overrode any power that this demon had. He had no choice but to submit to him instantly. And so as simply as a parent silencing an unruly child and sending him to their bedroom, Jesus says, be quiet, go away. And it does, shrieking in fear. Now isn't this interesting? I find this very ironic. That one of Satan's primary weapons against us is fear. So when he growls like a roaring lion, we cower in instinct. We're afraid. He's scary. He's a lion. But with Jesus, it's the other way around. It is Satan and his demons that cower. It is they who fear him. As James 2.19 tells us, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. They shudder. So we see it is the demons that shudder at Jesus' presence. They quake in fear and have no choice but to submit to his power and authority over him. Be quiet. Go away. And that's it. They're gone. Just like that. And so our final question that comes to us personally. Can we have victory over Satan and the demons? Once again, the short answer, praise God, is yes. Yes. Emphatically. In Jesus' great commission from Matthew 28, he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, did you catch that? A question of authority. Jesus says, some authority? No. All authority has been given unto me. Therefore, you go. We have been sent under and with Jesus' authority. The parallel Great Commission in Mark 16 and verse 17 explains it further, where Jesus also told them what his authority would enable them to do. He said this, All these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. So if you are a born-again, spirit-filled disciple of Jesus Christ, then this applies to you. This is why James 4 verse 7 tells us, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and 
He will flee from you. Be quiet. Leave. That's what Jesus said to the demon that day. We have that authority, not because I'm significant or powerful. No, I am very weak and very insignificant. The significance is in Jesus' name and in his authority. If God is in me, then I can say even to Satan himself, in the name of Jesus Christ, be quiet and leave, and he will flee from you. You, 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 all of you. This word applies to you. We have been given this authority. So you see, my friends, when you or I first submit ourselves to God in faith, then even the devil himself must submit to us and run. Not because of our authority, but because of his, in the mighty name of Jesus. So don't try to fight Satan alone. Stand firm in the mighty name and authority of Jesus Christ, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We humbly thank you that such great authority through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, has been given to us who believe. And that by your Spirit, we can say today that greater are you who is in me than he that is in the world, even the devil himself. And so, Lord, may we humbly yet confidently stand firm against him. May we be strong and courageous no matter what comes, knowing that you are with us and you promise us victory through you and through your Son. It's already ours. May we lay claim to it today. In Jesus' name, amen.